Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this narration of the story, The Survivor Becomes a Dungeon, taken from Royal Road. If you are new to the series, there is a playlist listed in the description. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy Chapter 7, Ravia Alderstant Elf Mage Point of View. A dungeon call? One intelligent enough to carry a conversation, has a name and can even resurrect the dead. Just, uh, what have I stumbled across? Ravia was just out here to cripple the efforts of those damned fools. How she'd ended up crossing an unknown dungeon. But Mori, huh? Well, I'd say it's a pleasure to meet you, but, uh, considering the circumstances, I can't say that I mean it. Her gaze followed the green orb of light, assuming it presents the core for now, while glancing around the almost wholly natural cavern she finds herself in. Well, what do you want with me? She asks the ball of light pushing up to her feet to stand with dignity. The core is silent for a good while before she hears the voice echoing in her skull. She's not usually one to be presumptuous, but it sounds... I want to learn. I, I need information about this world if I'm going to survive it from now on. This world? Survive? That is such odd phrasing, she thinks, slowly gathering her composure as Mori continues. You're no bandit, and neither is the bullman. Rionum, if your memories serve me right. I could not discern your motives beyond the scrolls I've found. So tell me, why were you with them? She massages her temples. The dungeon doesn't seem to know volume control yet, and it's giving her a bit of a headache. Wait, you're commanding that elemental prowler, the black cat? She asked with a growing understanding. This dungeon must have had experience with bandits before to attack so viciously on sight. She could feel the dungeon's impatience, but it decided to answer her anyway. You mean, Masty, uh, so that's what she's called, yeah. She's my right hand. She shudders as she remembers how quickly that prowler managed to dispatch her. No wonder a named mana beast like that would give anyone a run for their money, especially under the guidance of an intelligent corps. All right, I'm no bandit. Neither is Rionan. We are here on orders from His Majesty, Emperor Ferodius. There is a pregnant pause and she can feel that the core isn't satisfied with just that much info. With a sigh, she runs her fingers through her hair and continues. His Majesty offered these criminals a pardon if they would could serve the Empire in disrupting the chain of supply between the Gaian theocracy and the hegemony of the Blue Sun. They are the two remaining political powers that stand in His Majesty's path of unification of this continent. There is another long pause. Her head started to ache as a vague notion of history unfamiliar to her, throbbing in her skull before the call speaks up. What justification does your Emperor have to seek unification? Well, it looks like Vidmori isn't unreasonable. Perhaps I'll be able to walk away if I can convince him. There is a movement across the ocean on the other continents. A superpower over there is likely gearing up to engage in a path of domination. The Emperor Ferodius seeks to prevent that from happening to us by unifying the land and protecting our borders. There is more silence before Vitmori echoes in her skull again. Tell me about the theocracy and the hegemony. She sighs with some relief. Just happy Vitmori is so willing to engage in dialogue rather than outright killing her or something. Before she continues, though, she feels movement behind her and notices that her chair is suddenly there. Huh. 
Yes, he did go to my tent. She looked at the green ball of light and nodded with a vague appreciation as she settled in. The theocracy is a bunch of zealous bastards that believe the supreme power of light magic users. While most are unaware of this belief and practice, the archbishops and those in power hold disdain and disgust towards people with animalistic features, seeing them as uh, subhuman beings. It is a public secret that beast folk will occasionally disappear, but no one questions it, unless they face the attention of the religious police. She pauses, listening for a response. When she doesn't hear one, she continues. The Hegemony is a collective of extremely wealthy merchants and traders, with an elected figurehead to run international contacts and business. Their capital is a major port city, with ships launching into the rest of the world. They publicly have an active slave trade and get most of their beastkin slaves from the theocracy. However, officially their publicly known trade deals with the theocracy are in luxury goods food, and alchemical ingredients for potions. For now, we three nations are publicly in peacetime, but we've seen an escalation of trade which points towards a secret alliance. She can feel the mind of Admori slowly processing everything she's told him. Unease creeps along the back of her skull the longer she has to wait. She almost lets out a sigh of relief when her headaches form the core response to her. You certainly believe everything you've told me. And I don't feel you have any reason to lie to me. She nods slowly. So, what does that mean for me? More silence. But then, but Mori responds, much to the ache of her head. I will help you ambush the caravan. If what you say corroborates what I see, we will discuss things further. She let out the faintest glimmer of a smile creep into her face. Cooperating with the dungeon isn't the worst possible outcome in this exchange. I can live with that. Oh, uh... Uh, speaking of which, I want my friend back too. Rionum. Are, are you able to do that? Like, like you did for me, she asks, pleading with Widmori. She's known the younger Minotaur for much of his life and doesn't want to lose him so soon. Widmori is silent for a while, though she soon hears a soft thump. Turning to look, she sees the corpse of a dear friend, Rionum, and rushes over to him. A lump forms in her throat as she looks over the brutal nature of his injuries until she noticed them start to fade. Rubbing her eyes clear, she adjusts her sight and looks to see the massive amount of mana being poured into him. She follows the path of the mana to somewhere above them before seeing Rionim twitch and convulse when suddenly his mana heart is reignited. And she's scooting back as he sits up with a start, a ring of emerald forming around the right shoulder. Oh! Where am I? What happened? Easy, friend. It's going to be okay. You're fine now, she says soothingly, rubbing the guy's upper back before stepping away, tears of relief forming in her eyes until she wipes them away, noticing a path forming of light orbs leading them away from this place. Come, we have a lot to discuss. End of chapter. Chapter 8 Zassiter, Blizzard Man, Point of View His body is battered, bruised, and overall just beaten. The religious police couldn't let him off with abducting and selling him, could they? They just had to kick his scales in. The old lizard wheezes as much as he could heal himself. His body wasn't meant to deal with such abuse at his age. The wagon shudders and skips over whatever is out there. A grunt escaping from his bound snout. 
He was right in the end. He knew something was wrong. Children from the orphanages going missing. Ill, beastkin, never returning from temple clinics. Long-term jobs where families lose all contact with those who took the jobs. Though, when he started rocking the boat and kicking up a fuss, they came for him. He probably should have kept his mouth shut. But screw it. He'd do it again if it meant that he could help even one more person. The sound of grumbling stomach pricks his ears. His gaze softens as he turns to look at one of the several orphans on this particular carriage of the caravan with him. He ships in place before jerking suddenly as a snap is heard behind him. While his arms were bound, the kids were shackled by their necks. Barely an effort was made to restrain them. With some more squirming, he rolled about a foot of his now severed tail over to the kids. Eat! I'm sorry there's nothing else. He murmured apologetically. The kids are tearful, sniffering and whimpering, but doing their best not to anger the gods outside with their noises. They take up the gamey tail and begin digging into their first meal in several days. He can only pray that the others and the other cots are faring well. Another bump in the road causes him to hiss, shattering from his now constant dull throb aching through his body. Unwilling to shut his eyes, getting some desperately needed rest before an unholy cacophony of howls shatters his senses. Sound of panic starts clamoring about as he ships more, pressing his head up against the cart and peering out through the hole in the canvas over it, only to see a blur soar through the air, sending an acolyte crashing into the cart he was in, sending a spray of blood up and even stained the cart canvas. With Maury, point of view, I, uh, I can taste it. Flesh and blood on my imaginary tongue. It's so satisfying, in such a sickening way. My perspective shifts over to Uruu, who is currently hung loosely around Pasty's neck. Uruu has grown to four feet now, after that last burst of energy I'd given him. Basti, in turn, has grown even more, becoming more akin to a tigress than a lioness. Her build is bristly with the power of her muscles, yet she moves as silently as before, dashing up to one of the cart drivers and ripping him from his seat brutally. Uru hopped off Basti while she lunged, popping soft onto the canvas atop the cart, before slithering speedily over to the other side, dropping down on an elf in chainmail. The snake coiled around their throat and himself while the man tried grasping at Uruu to free himself. However, Uruu suddenly put down on his tail, becoming immovable, much to the elf's misfortune. What I do notice is that the elf is rapidly losing strength, faster than what I would have expected from being choked out. Looking closer, I sense Uruu outright drains the man's vitality. The greedy snake isn't even sharing. Huh. Shifting my focus, I watch as the human woman in a half-plate sidesteps the orc zombie mutant, redirecting the tackle with her shield as she shuts out. Her shield glimmers brightly with energy that flashes the zombie. I don't know what it's supposed to do, but the orc zombie is unaffected as she rushes the armored woman. The armored woman backed up in surprise, only to be tackled from behind by the pure black-skinned elf zombie. The two sink their teeth into her, as she's put down. Rionum, point of view. By the gods, they're not even affected by turn undead. 
he said breathlessly, looking over to Rayvire for confirmation. Have you heard of an undead like that? I thought they only shambled around and smelt terrible. The elf shakes her head, looking back at the carnage before her as she gulps a bit. Sure, there are fast undead, powerful undead too. But what doesn't make sense is how he could have turned ordinary criminals into monsters like that in less than a day. She shook her head once more as she noticed something happening. There are runners, remember? We're supposed to make sure nobody escapes. She reminded Rionum as she stepped forward, leveling her staff as she began her silent incantation. Heavy bolts of ice form and sail in the air as they impaled two fleeing caravan guards. Rionum bellowed out a war cry and charged, wielding his massive hammer in one hand as he came up behind the holy knight in full plate currently fending off a bird-beast-kin zombie and another human zombie. The Holy Knight is dealing damage as they cleave the bird's head off in a devastating swing before bisecting the human zombie. That is, until Rhiannon brings down his skullcracker, caving in the knight's helmet, killing him instantly. Long before the remaining scattered guards and coachmen are run down by the dungeon's mysterious undead and prowler, the ambush had only taken a few minutes now that it was all over. They were more guards than we anticipated. This would be a hard-fought battle if not for the dungeon, he admitted, eyeing the undead warily as they blankly stood around now that the fighting was done. Their bodies are bloody and covered with gore, not even their own. Despite their power, only three of the original eight zombies remained. We are right. Who would have thought that theocracy would be so brazen as to have holy knights accompanying a smuggling escort? Ravire shook her head, exhaustion hitting her as she looked into the carts. Her sigh was stifling by surprise as she called out for Rhiannon and maybe Vitmori if he was watching. We've got slaves here, she said. Seeing the terrible reality in her face struck a chord with her as she looked them over. Remain calm. You are being rescued. End of chapter. Chapter 9. Ravire, Elderstint, POV. Uh, uh, that, that snake around Basti's neck, that's a, a juvenile titan power, isn't it? The scale colorations are unique, but the shape of its head and the style of its tail are, uh, it's uh, unmistakable, she says to Riodam, who gives an uncertain shrug, not nearly as worldly as the two and a half century old elf woman. She glances around, noting the three undead taking up their group's rear. They're so calm and behaved, it's unnerving, especially with the blood and gore dripping from their maw and bodies. She shook her head, just trying to ignore her nerves, though she can't help but consider that if this dungeon were any more malevolent, she and Rhiannon would probably be among their ranks. She then glanced over at the battered lizard man among the enslaved people. Despite his condition, the young elder kept pace as they ascended the mountainside. How much further are we going? She asked Basti, the boss prowler. Basti glances back but, of course, doesn't speak as she turns her head once more. It wasn't much longer until they passed the cave that she and Riordan exited, but they were going higher still. Zacita, POV What was he getting himself into? The mage and the Minotaur were a big help in aiding the other Beeskin slaves to escape from slavery, but now they were following a prowler and an undead escort up a mountain. 
It's obvious the monster and the undead are under the influence of a higher power. But he didn't realize he would have to climb a mountain. Hal, what was he going to do now? It's not like he can go back home. He's been declared dead. Not to mention that he would get snatched up again, wouldn't he? What about the other people? The orphans? That's right. Now he remembers what spurred him on to follow these people. He needed to either secure passage to the Empire or somewhere to keep his people safe. And the best chance for that was by following these people. With renewed determination, he pressed forward, much to the protest of his old needs. Suddenly, after reaching a certain height, a staircase began forming before their very eyes, making the ascent much more manageable, even that the stairs zigzagged along the mountainside to counter the steepness. Ravi Aldenstent POV They were high up now, the steps making the latter half of the trek almost manageable. Before long, they came across a sculpted entryway. Briefly, she worried that Rionum would be made to wait outside, though the triangular entrance parted further, allowing the young Minotaur to duck inside as they entered. Before them was an ornate dome-shaped atrium. Her attention was grabbed by the core in the center of the chamber, the emerald gem glimmering with three rings of light inside of it. Considering the fifteen people taken down by its monsters, half of them were acolytes and holy knights. She couldn't be surprised by the amount of energy coursing through that core, despite the young-looking size. She was so focused on the core for a moment that she almost didn't notice the four prowler cubs watching her off to the right. Basti, strolling through the sand of the room until she plopped down into the sleeping area. Not to mention how the undead walked past the core, standing in the sand on the other side of the chamber, before being engulfed by the ground and disappearing. She swallowed, wondering how many monsters were in the sand around her. Her head began to throb, and she could see the others holding their heads when the dungeon spoke. Now that the caravan has been dealt with and the slaves saved, we should discuss how we should be moving forward. Ravia nods, stepping forward to address the core. I agree, and, uh, first of all, I thank you, Mori, for honoring us with the privilege of standing in your core chamber. When we first spoke, you asked that I teach you, yes? Have you willing to do so to secure further cooperation? She offered, hoping to secure a good deal for her emperor. The core was silent, the green gem before her pulsed with mana and power. Though soon it continued, the strain on her head lessened compared to earlier. Perhaps he's learning to manage his voice. I hold no feelings towards the raiders, slavers even more so. I will continue to attack caravans from both kingdoms once I confirm that they are, in fact, enslaved people in their cargo. In exchange, I want good relations with the Empire of yours. As a gift of goodwill, I offer these diamonds to you. He explains as she hears a quiet thumps turning to see many gems falling from the air into the sand. Her eyes widened as she looked them over from where she stood. The gems in question were varied in size. Some were as small as grapes, while others were as big as strawberries, and even one that could be compared to a plum. They were beautifully cut and pristine, but also multicolored. Are those the diamonds? Truly? she asked, not believing her eyes. There were many colors. A lot were blue, and others were white, purple, yellow, green, and even black. She'd never seen diamonds with such variations and hues. But Maury spoke up, and she could sense mirth in his voice. 
They look good, though. Uh, I'm sorry I could not make them purer or bigger. They were just a rush job in the end. Ravire gulped a bit, trying to consider the implications of that statement before clearing her throat. <clears throat> we appreciate your generosity, Vidmari, and I promise to do my best in securing good relations between you and the Empire. She gushed. Rhiannon was not getting what was happening, but going to collect the array of gems as he procured a pouch from his staff and began plucking them out of the sand. Before she could continue, though, the dungeon spoke up again. I shall grant you two names. I like you, and it seems naming bestows a measure of power to those named. Ravire blanched at that. She was about to get pure, processed mana straight from a dungeon core. Would this be the tipping point to settle another ring around her mana heart? But Mori continues, his voice no longer even a pulse in her head. Ravire Alderstent, I grant you the name of Wintry. From now on, your name shall be known as Ravire Wintry Alderstent for your elemental ability. However, I also have some knowledge for you to consider in improving your magic. He explained suddenly. The headache returns as a skull throbs. Concepts flash through her head about gas that can be pulled from the air to form ice that can be even colder than water-based ice. Letting out a huff from the stress, she spluttered with vital warmth. It was almost overwhelming as she had to clench her staff and shut her eyes, focusing on the manner entering her as she guided it around her body and into her heart. The three rings of concentrated manner she'd spent the last couple hundred years slowly forming with shuddering. However, Despite the dungeon's apparent inexperience in handling mana, she managed to use the mana given to her effectively and wrangled the gift of mana to form a fourth ring. This advanced her power level a hundred years earlier than she could have managed, without a doubt. But Mori, I, I thank you for this most generous of gifts, she exclaimed, her eyes bursting open and dropping to a knee and bowing to the core as she felt exhilarated after what just happened. She didn't even realize one of her blue eyes was now an emerald green. Rionim point of view. Rionim watched with odd fascination before looking at the core on his turn. Rionim, I grant you the last name of Kratan. You may be known as Rionim Kratan and grow to be a fine warrior. Do not let your losses stunt your growth. Move forward and learn through them. The bull staggers under the weight of the manor, coursing through him, but he soon recovers, one of his brown eyes turning emerald green. He could feel his manor heart pound and throb with vigor. His vitality outright felt like he could topple a mountain if he tried, but probably not really. He goes down to one knee, bowing his head. I thank you for all your gift, Vidmori. I'll do my best to serve once we return. He goes to stand, grinning at an equally ecstatic Ravire, who smiles up at him when he hears the cough and clearing throat of the lizard man who had been patiently waiting for his turn. Zassiter, POV. The battered old lizard steps forward, clawed feet clattering against the stone as the mage and warrior step aside. Oh, great and powerful Bidbori, hear my plea. We, Beeskin, who the Gaian theocracy has cast out, have no home to return to. And while I'm sure these kind empire folk would be willing to bring us with them, there will no doubt be more Beeskin coming through your territory as enslaved people. 
If it is your will, allow us to settle in your land, to build a haven for ourselves under the shadow of your protection. He begged with silent desperation, getting down to his knees and prostrating himself. The call was silent for a good while again, before speaking up in their minds. Yeah, sure, I don't mind. End of chapter. Chapter 10. Zassita, POV. His body suddenly relaxed, but Mori had been nonchalant. But by accepting his people, Zassiter couldn't help but feel his anxieties washing away. Though he suddenly felt anxious again as he felt the call's voice echoing in his mind. However, I need something from you. You may stay on my land, but setting up any supply and structures will no doubt take time and resources. If you're anything to go by regarding the state of your people, that'll be hard to get going. Zassiter's mind raced wondering what Vidmori could want with an old man like him. His gaze went over to the mages and warriors as they merely shrugged. If it means my people will be safer sooner, then I will do anything. Vidmori was silent for a couple of moments before his voice came through. It almost sounded like he was smiling. Good. That's a praiseworthy mindset. I need two things from you. First, hunt a flying bird for me and offer it before me. Your second task will be presented after you're done. You don't need to hunt the bird yourself, but the sooner you present it to me, the sooner we move forward. In the meantime, there are about eight tents in the woods with bare scraps for food. You may use all the supplies from the caravan you came in on to get your people settled in. Zassita was vaguely surprised but nodded as he bowed his head lower, scraping the floor. Hey, bird. Yes, I shall bring you the finest bird I can find. Oh, great, but Maury. Oh, uh, and here. Yeah, I have no real use for these weapons yet, so, uh, hopefully, uh, they'll serve you well. But Maury explained as two bows, two quivers, and a total of forty arrows, an axe, and a short sword, and a long sword appeared at the bottom of the steps to the pedestal. Zasita raised his head in acknowledgement wondering where it all came from as he stood and began to collect everything. His arms were laden with weapons as Rionim decided to pitch in and at least help carry everything down. Ravire turned to acknowledge with Mori once more. We shall take Zassiter back to his people and help them collect themselves. From there, we shall make our way to the Empire to report to his majesty. But Mori was quiet for a bit, though he responded. All right, then, uh, safe travels. He sounded relatively cheerful as Ray Vire bowed her head and left with Rionim and the Lizard Man. The doorway grew once more as it passed before going back to normal. Vidmori point of view. Well, uh, I somehow got myself tangled into international politics. I was never one for politics myself. I was more suited to sticking a knife between someone's ribs or infiltrating a place to spy while remaining out of sight. Nonetheless, I now have representatives in this new world, which should help me in the long run. Looking over Basti, I can't see her changing much physically anymore, though I notice some movement around her manor heart. She's got one of those rings now, which seems fascinating to watch, though I shouldn't let myself get too distracted as I let my right hand enjoy her catnap. I dole out some more mana to the cubs, the set of four getting a burst of energy like the kids in caffeine as they play around in that parkour nook. 
the grey-black boy cub even joining in this time for the mewling and roughhousing. I look around for Uruuru for a few moments, since he's uncharacteristically not holding his post on my pedestal steps. It doesn't take long to find him, since he's currently coiled up in a house rock. It seems the poor fellow is also tired after such a busy day. Upon closer inspection, though, it looks like he's got layers of skin slowly peeling off of him. Huh. I wonder if that's how snakes usually shed skin. It's not like I ever watched the process before. At this point, I turn my attention to myself, looking over my core after those intense waves of energy I got today. I had three rings earlier, but now after naming Rionim and Ravire, as well as finishing up with the thing with the diamonds, there are only two rings left. I also grew bigger again. Not my much, mind you, but it is noticeable. I'm still essentially grapefruit size, but with a couple more inches added to my overall diameter. In other news, it seems once my mana zombies get killed, I'm unable to bring them back once more. It's a shame, but I'm glad I don't have any useless corpses cluttering my inventory. On the other hand, the three that survived the last attack seem to have undergone some more mutations. The green orc seems to have bulked up. Her shoulders are now broader, and her fingers and fingernails look denser and sharper. The black-skinned elf looks more slender, yet upon further inspection, I can tell his leg muscles have been defined far more for leaping and jumping, increasing his mobility. Finally, the last human zombie. The lower jaw has clubbed off and his arms were severed. Even with all that, I can see that his throat has already developed specific mutations, along with his stomach and bile. Fascinating. Outside of those guys... I now have 15 new corpses to experiment with. Aside from most of them being more physically developed, a lot of them also have the makings of magic users, which I'm fascinated to see play out. Not to mention all their weapons and armor I can study and try to reverse engineer. If I can learn more about the armor of this world, I can probably start adapting it with some modern twists, which should only improve things for those in my care. I have a lot of work and probably enough time to do it. I hope that the lizard guy comes back with a bird soon. Those kids aren't in the best of shape, despite the requirements I set for the guy. I'd rather help them sooner than later. End of chapter. Chapter 11. Zassiter Point of View I suppose I ought to thank the gods that Vidmori is a benevolent being. However, I wonder what he wants a bird for, of all things. Zassida went and wandered the woods near the camp the others were starting to set up, deciding to get a start in Vitmori's request. After a headcount, the now freed slaves were made up of fifteen beeskin, eight of which were children, a pair of dwarves, a mother and a daughter, a half-elf boy and three human youths, as well as himself. At the end of the day, it wasn't a lot of people when it came to the grand scale of the theocracy, but he cursed himself for not noticing this disgusting practice sooner. Looking around, he was also cursing himself at how inefficient he was at being a hunter. He spotted several large birds of prey, glorious eagles and falcons, just soaring out of reach. The few that he was managed to sneak up on, he'd missed terribly. His old and battered arms are unable to properly handle the bow and arrows that were gifted to him by Vidmori. And the times that he can get off a shot, these eyes fail him as he's either way off or just barely missing. He keeps trying, though, burning himself well into the night until a teenage rat, Beeskin, comes to find him 
Helder, there you are. We were getting worried when you hadn't come back to the camp. Come, we've got some dinner going. A stew made with some of the mushrooms, herbs, and tubers, accompanied by dry meats, he enthused, gently taking the older man by his arm. However, he was watching the elder with worried eyes. Ah, oh, sorry. I must have not noticed the day escaping me, Zassita replied tiredly, letting out a heavy sigh. What's the matter, Elder? You haven't explained why you've been out hunting. I understand that our food situation may be a bit precarious, however, that doesn't mean that you need to be the one going out to hunt, the rat beeskin asked, attempting to guess the reason himself. Zazita looked over the teen rat beeskin and spoke. Your name is uh, Remy, right? Remy nodded in confirmation. Just happy, the elder remembered his name after just hearing it once. Well, Remy, the master of this land, Vutmori, has tasked me with hunting a bird for him. As soon as I can, he should provide us with the materials so that we can build ourselves a haven, sooner rather than later. Remy looked surprised. His rodent ears twitched in thought as his pink rat tail curled and flicked behind him. So that's why you've been out in the woods all afternoon and night. Why didn't you tell any of us? Zazita looked abashed as he averted his gaze. But Maury tossed me with this, and uh, there was plenty of work to be done at the camp. You didn't need an old lizard like me getting in the way. Remy could see where the elder was coming from, but shook his head. You need your rest to recover from your wounds like the rest of us, Alda. We were concerned, he explained, leading him to the camp. A good-sized bonfire was going. A wolf woman stirring a pot that was still public with stew as the group welcomed the duo back. Remy makes his way over to the pot and serves up a bowl of stew and brings it over to the elder with some bread, meat, and some wine from the wagons. The younger dog girl setting out some blankets for the elder to rest on. Zasita can feel the exhaustion coursing through his body now that he's finally off his feet. He feels even more feeble than before, and figures he probably would have collapsed in the woods had Remy not tracked him down. He eats quietly, the warm soup feeling like a luxury after the last few days. Suddenly, there's a shift in the atmosphere of the camp, the adults and teens getting to their feet, a few of them collect the weapons they got, while others wield clubs from the thick tree branches. Prowler, and it's a huge one, said one of the teen humans, wielding the short sword. Zassida turns to look before forcing himself to stand as he gets between the group and the prowler. Calm yourselves, please. This is Basti, one of the Mori's beasts. If she meant us harm, we would not have even seen her. At that, the camp was still somewhat anxious, but they lowered their weapons. Masti, for her part, was relaxed the whole time, as if these people didn't even register as a threat. Once they were relaxed, she settled down at the edge of the flame light and watched over the camp for the night. The group was reasonably anxious, but they slowly got over it as they returned to enjoy their dinner before going their separate ways, dividing themselves into the array of about twenty tents. Having taken the camping supplies from the caravan to make sure everyone had something between themselves and the elements. The following day came and went, and soon it was afternoon and Zasita began to wake. He could feel his whole body ache and strain against his will to move. Remy was right. 
he definitely shouldn't have pushed himself to hunt for so long, especially after climbing a mountain. It is a blessing, though, that his natural constitution has already healed most of his superficial wounds. He could see his tail growing, the faintest of nubs, where he had ripped it off the day before. Finally, with some more effort, he got to his feet and left his tent, and was greeted by afternoon sun. The camp was abuzz with activity. Lunch being served as Remy and the wolf woman cooked up some venison from a deer and one of the other beeskin hunted. Good morning, Alda, Remy called out cheerfully upon seeing him. A few other camp members doing the same as he approached. Or rather, should I say, good afternoon, he mused kindly as he offered a plate with a fire-grilled seasoned meat then steamed tubers. Zazita took it gratefully once more, lowering his head slightly in thanks. It seems that I was more exhausted than I realized. Thank you, Remy, for coming to get me last night. The rat teen smiled cheerfully, his rodent ear twitching with delight. It's no problem, Elder. We're just glad to see that you're looking better. With that, Zazita settled down under the shade of a nearby tree to eat more. The food filled his desperate stomach, and he savored every morsel. Other members of the camp greeted Zazita as they passed, but one of the human teams stopped by and offered a small cloth-wrapped hump bundle. Remy told me you needed a bird for Bitmori. I'm sorry if this is not good enough, but I managed to strike it out of the air with my sling, she explained, unfurling a bundle to reveal a sparrow with a bloody torso. It would have been a difficult shot indeed. Zacida couldn't help but let out a big toothy smile. It's perfect! Thank you for your help, he enthused softly, taking the bundle in his clawed hands ever so gently. The human teen smiled as she stood. You're welcome, Alda. Uh, have a good day now, she said gently as she walked off. With a meal done and the bird in hand, he made his way towards the mountain and sighed beginning to ascend. However, he was approached by Basti, who seemed to have been waiting for him. She laid down and flicked her ears, seemingly still waiting. Do, um, do, do, do you wish for me to ride you? He asked in a massive prowler with some anxiety. Surprisingly, she gave him a nod. At that, he made his way over and climbed on, and as soon as he was settled in, she began to move and climb with considerable speed and care. Before he knew it, he was climbing off Basti, standing before the sculpted entrance of Vidmori's chamber. Almost hesitantly, he stepped inside, claws clattering noisily against the brick. The call's voice echoed in his mind. Ah, welcome back. I see you were successful in your task. Good, good. Zacita got to his knees as he approached the pedestal with the call of Vidmori before him. Yes, oh mighty Vidmori, I offer you the sparrow. Forgive me for not offering you a finer bird, as I had promised. Don't worry about it, and the bird is perfect. Now then, for your second task. But Maury started to say, kind of trading off in Zasta's mind. Zasta looked eager, though, as he looked up to the call. Yes, but Maury, what is it? For my people, I will do anything. But Maury was still hesitant, as it took a few moments for him to speak up again. Good, uh, uh, th th that's a good mindset. But Maury, what is the second task that you have for me? Zacita asks, confused by Vitmori's hesitancy. Well, uh, that's the thing. Uh, for, for the second task, uh, I need you to um, die, he finally said. 
Zacita was silent for a moment or two, looking surprised before quietly whispering, Oh! End of story. Zacita point of view. The old lizard trembles, his anxiety bubbling over, yet he doesn't speak up until a few more moments. Well, great one, uh, if this one old man's life is a sacrifice that you need to protect everyone else, then, uh, then, uh, you may take it. What? Sacrifice? No, no. It's merely the process that binds you to me. That way, uh, I may actively work where you are and staying without having to send Bassie or Uluru. Uh, at least, uh, as far as I can tell. It's how I've been bound to everyone so far, but Maury did his best to explain. Zazida looked more confused now than anything, sitting up on his knees as he gazed into the swirling glow of the core before him. You mean you intend on making me a vassal of yours? Hey, representative? He asked curiously, then tilting his head a little bit. Yes, that. Glad you found the words for it since you threw me off with the whole sacrifice talk. But Maury sounds almost relieved now that the situation has been clarified. With the general mood seemingly de-escalated, Dacita relaxed more, sitting cross-legged before the pedestal. I see. Well, um, if it's no trouble, could we perhaps try doing this without me, uh, dying? There was a bit of a pregnant pause before Budmori spoke up. I don't see why not. I'll be honest with you. I've never done all of this without someone dying first, so I apologize for any discomfort you're about to go through. Zastadon nodded in understanding, grateful that he wouldn't be outright sacrificed. Well, uh, anything is preferable to death but Mori, he enthused with a small, warm smile. Of course, now then, perhaps you should lay in the sand. I want you to be as relaxed as you can be when I do this, but Mori explains. The images of the mage and the warrior straining and buckling under the weight of the manor flashed in Zastadon's mind, though... It wasn't from his perspective. The elder bowed his head in understanding as he stood, making his way over to the sand of the chamber just off the brick path, the eyes of the prowler cubs watching him from the shelf-looking area, slowly getting down onto his stomach, laying his head on his arms as if to go to sleep. The next thing he knew, it was like he was being smashed into a tidal wave. He was being swept away by the sheer amount of mana poured into him. He could feel his body shifting and twisting under the weight of it all as he pants and groaned out. But Maury, point of view. Gosh, uh, this old lizard is a mess. Lots to do and lots to fix. It's strange. Why doesn't he have a mana heart? I wonder if that's the norm. It's not like I've worked on anything that didn't have one. There are faint glimmers around his heart, but nothing of substance. I grant thee the title, Shepherd. May your efforts in my service work to free more of your people from slavery. With that, a considerable chunk of energy began pouring into the guy. Though, I'm not really satisfied with that. So I go ahead and commit one of the rings in manner that is swirling around my core into the sky. Peering closer within, I guide the manor around. They were easy, aches and pains, closing internal injuries and wiping away old scars and breaks. His scales become a more vibrant bronze instead of a dull brown that they were earlier. A diamond of green forming on the lizard's forehead. I also decided to beef him up a little bit, 
stimulating the natural muscle growth now that his joints aren't an issue anymore. I'm able to regrow his tail in short order as well, but just by stimulating his natural healing factor. Even his reptilian hair regains its color, going from white to an earthy brown. Before I know it, the elder has become a man in his prime. If I had to guess, I just shaved 30 to 50 years of wear off of him and turned him into a well-developed physical specimen of his race. His manor heart also seems to have developed, pounding with vigor. One of his now vibrant copper-brown eyes turned emerald green. Zassiter point of view. It's over. The manor finally stops, and his whole body feels heavy. He could feel his heart thumping in his chest. Wait. He can feel his heart thumping. He opened his eyes slowly, taking in a deep breath, before exhaling, with an ease he hadn't felt in decades. Sitting up, he looks over to Vidmori's core with such a distinct clarity. I, uh, I feel so young. My eyes haven't been this good in years. Even as he sat up, he felt much more limber, testing himself as he launched up with a push. Hopping onto his feet as he lets out a stupefied chuckle, before laughing almost hysterically as he looked himself over. By the gods, I'm... I'm sexy, he enthused, sort of spinning in place as he looked over his pristine scales, running his clawed fingers through his hair before looking over his hands and arms. His raggedy clothes barely fit him now as his body was more filled out with nowhere near as decrepit as it used to be. He was panting with exhilaration, the smile plastered on his face before he remembered where he was and turned to look at Vitmori's core, approaching and getting to both knees as he bowed as deeply as he could manage. Oh, great one, I thank you for this blessing, for this new lease on life you've granted me. I swear I will be a loyal servant forevermore. With that, he hopped back up to his feet, intensely appreciating the novel sensation as he flexed his legs and toes, chuckling with delight at the sight of the mobility. But Maury's voice echoed in his mind, and he sounded surprised, but full of mirth. I'm happy for you, Zester. I'm just glad it turned out so well. Now then, uh, it's time for you to go back to the camp. We have some work to do. Zasseter smiled, looking back over to Vitmori's core and bowing his head. Of course, great one. I'll make my way down as soon as possible. With that, he turned towards the chamber entrance and stepped out into the daylight. Holding his hand towards the sun as his eyes adjusted to the light. With a slow, deep breath, he grins and starts heading down the mountain with a skip in his step. End of chapter. I would quickly like to thank the T5 channel members and Patreons. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Barky, Lord Azrakal, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Dragzoon, WRE, Holly's Sister, Arcadian. Thank you very much.